Father, we do ask that you would speak now and that by your word you would illumine our hearts and give us hope in the one who gave himself for us. And Lord, we pray that you would teach us that following in his footsteps is the path to joy. So Lord, we ask that through this passage you would make us more Christ-like and you would convince us anew of how the scriptures, in the scriptures, you have provided for us everything that we need for life and godliness. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. The book of Genesis, uh, which we're looking at together, is really a book that understands us. It's a book that speaks to us where we are. So uh, I would invite you this morning to open with me to Genesis chapter 43. And as you turn there, I would invite you to consider the way that the story of Genesis is, is really our story. It's a story of how God created all things good, this fabulous world, but then through man's rebellion, people, all of us, were alienated from God, driven out of the holy garden of Eden and, and banished from God's good presence. But God speaks words of hope even to rebels who have rightly been banished from him. Words that promise that they can be redeemed. So that even when Genesis 4, Cain kills Abel, even when the, the world is deluged by the flood, even when people, sometimes we do things like this, engage in misguided building projects, building towers for our own names, even when we make stupid decisions like the ones that Abraham made, or when we engage in outright sin, in the midst of all of this, in the book of Genesis and in our lives, God is mercifully, lovingly at work, upholding standards of righteousness, and at the same time lavishing mercy on those whom he calls to himself. So as we approach Genesis 43 this morning, I just want to put before us five questions that I think this passage speaks to, questions that arise out of the whole story of Genesis and that in, in a way, Genesis 43 is contributing to answering. So first, how will we re-enter God's presence? That question arises from Genesis 3, when the man and woman sin, and they're driven out of the Garden of Eden. How will we get back into God's presence? Genesis 43 will speak to that. Second, you'll remember that in Genesis 3, the Lord said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And then as we've gone through Genesis, we've seen how the enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman is manifested as Cain murders Abel. And then, for instance, as Ishmael mocks Isaac, and as Esau wants to kill Jacob. And then, even in the Joseph story, as Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. That's all, that, all of that those are all expressions of the enmity between the seed of the, seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. How is that enmity going to be removed? That's our second question. Our third question, how will the world be blessed by Abraham's seed? So you remember, I've, I've suggested that Genesis 3.15, uh, the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent 
is, is going to come through the seed of Abraham and God promised in Genesis 12, 1 through 3 to bless all the world through the seed of Abraham. Genesis 43 is going to speak to this. And then fourth, how is the curse on the land going to be lifted? You remember that after the sin in, in the garden, um, God said to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. And then as we've gone through Genesis, we've seen things like floods and we've seen other famines. And every time we see something like this, I would suggest this is an outworking of God's curse on the ground. So if you look at Genesis 43.1 and we read, now the famine was severe in the land. That's an outworking of God's curse on the ground. How is the ground going to be renewed? How is the curse on the land going to be lifted? So those are our first four questions. And our fifth question uh, really tries to bring all of this home and make it personal. How, is our, how, are, how are our lives going to be renewed? Because the renewal of our lives is, is resulting from the ability to re-enter, re-enter God's presence, the removal of the enmity, uh, the blessing of the world through Abraham's seed, and then the lifting of the curse on the land. And in Genesis 43, we are going to get these, these massive steps in the direction of answers to all these questions. So let's look together at the first seven verses of the chapter where we see uh, the famine in Canaan. So in Genesis 43.1, we read, Now the famine was severe in the land. And just to refresh us, we remember that this is the famine that uh, was revealed to Pharaoh in his dreams and that Joseph told Pharaoh would come after the seven years of plenty. So the seven years of plenty have come and gone, and in those seven years, Joseph has stored up all of these resources, and now we're in the seven years of famine, and the famine is severe in the land. Probably this is specifically in 43.1, the land of Canaan. And then verse 2, when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt. So you'll remember that when we were in Genesis 42, Uh, Jacob sent his sons down into Egypt to buy grain because Joseph had had created all those storehouses. They bring the grain back, and now they've devoured it all, and there's still no food. The famine is going to continue for a number of years yet. We'll see in coming chapters that they're only two years into the famine, so maybe they're in the the first year or so of this famine. And Joseph, their father, said to them there in verse 2, Go again, buy us a little food. And notice how Judah is prominent here. Now, probably none of the brothers is really all that excited about communicating again to Jacob what they didn't know it was Joseph, but what Joseph, the Lord of Egypt, had said to them, which is, uh, as Judah's about to recount, you will not see me again unless you bring your youngest brother down here. And so, They know from the end of the previous chapter when Reuben had made this offer, if I don't bring Benjamin back to you, you can kill my two sons. And Jacob had said, I am not sending my son down there with you. I am not sending Benjamin down there with you. And you'll remember, well, if you don't remember, I want to remind you, the very hurtful words that Jacob had said to his sons on that occasion at the end of Genesis 42 Jacob says to his his other ten sons, his brother is dead and he is the only one left. 
Now, I think if you're the son of a father who speaks of you that way, as though you don't even count, because the beloved sons are the sons of Rachel, and one of them you help dispose of, and the other one, you're now dependent upon him going with you down into Egypt to buy food. You're probably not all that excited about talking to your father again. You don't even want to go near him, probably. And so nobody wants to deal with Jacob because the family is just in shambles, isn't it? And this is another way I think that Genesis speaks to us because so often our family relations are difficult. They're tense. We, we don't communicate with one another well. We, we, have, we have these tensions and conflicts between us. And so probably none of these sons are all that excited about talking to Jacob. But Judah steps forward. And he says to his father in verse 3, the man solemnly warned us, and he's speaking of Joseph, but they don't know it's Joseph yet, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. So those are the terms. And so Judah simply says in verse 4, if you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, and here he's going to repeat himself, the very words that Judah spoke in verse two, or sorry, verse three. He's going to speak again in verse five. You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Now, we, we might just pause here and, and consider how might a loving father respond to a situation like this? I think, I think there are probably a number of possibilities a way for a loving father to respond. I think if, if Jacob were trusting the Lord, he might say here at this point, well, if that's the way it is, our lives depend upon Benjamin going with you. And I, I think if, if he were in position to trust the Lord, even if he had suspicions about his sons, which he does, I think. I think he, he, he suspects these guys were probably not all that happy with Joseph. And I sent Joseph off to find them, and Joseph didn't come home. And, and then, you know, he's watched the way these guys have lived. Reuben has gone up to his couch uh, and, and, and violated his woman. Judah has gone off with a prostitute and had children, what he thought was a prostitute. Turns out it was his daughter-in-law and had children by her. And, and so these guys are probably not the kinds of people that you would look at and say, oh, these are upstanding men that I can trust with my beloved son. But I think even in the midst of that kind of scenario, a godly man might be in position to say something like this. Boys, I've made my share of mistakes. And I want to apologize to you for the ways that I've failed you, for the ways that I haven't loved you. I should apologize to you for the ways that I've shown favoritism. And, and, and I confess that I was wrong and, and I want to make that right in any way that I can. But I acknowledge at this point that our lives are dependent upon me taking Benjamin, whom you know I love, and putting him into your care and me entrusting him to you and you going down there and buying us food. So, guys, I, I, I'm sorry. I've done wrong. I've been wrong. But I'm going to trust Benjamin to you and I'm going to trust the Lord. Our lives are dependent upon this. We cannot live if I don't trust the Lord in this way. So I'm going to trust the Lord, and I'm going to trust the Lord to keep you in line. And I'm going to send Benjamin with you. I think that's the way a godly man of faith should respond at this point. That's not the way Jacob responds. And, and 
As a kind of point of, point of application, I just want to say, don't act like Jacob. If you are a husband and a father, don't act like Jacob. Look at what Jacob does. He just starts whining. If you're a father, if you're a husband, don't be a whiner. And I should say to my family, if I've been a whiner, I apologize. <laughs> I don't want to be a whiner. Look at what Jacob says. We read here in verse 6, Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man you had another brother? This is your fault. You guys had to reveal this information about me. They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother now? We, we had no ability to anticipate that. And then what we see next. So that's the situation. The situation is nobody's really yet responding in faith. Jacob isn't. But what we see next is, is so profound and beautiful from Judah. And it stands in stark contrast to Reuben's attempt to step up and lead. I think we've seen on a number of occasions, occasions Reuben try to step up and lead, but he, he really just comes across like a hypocritical scold. I told you so. I told you you shouldn't harm the boy. And, and then with his father, he says, if I don't bring Benjamin back, you can kill my two sons. Well, that, that's not really, you know, if this father, Reuben, is not going to protect his own son's lives, why should father Jacob believe that he's going to protect his son Benjamin's life. So kill my two sons if I don't bring him back is really not an assurance. And in the midst of this context, Judah, in verse 8, said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me, and we will arise and go. And we shouldn't miss how extraordinarily, I, I would even say supernaturally loving this is. For Judah to say to his father, against whom he has every right to feel a lot of bitterness, his father who has favored those younger brothers over him, his father who has spoken of him as though he is not even to be numbered among his own sons. He's the only one left. And now Judah's ready to say, send him with me, we will arise and go, and then here's this phrase that we saw in the previous chapter, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. Our lives depend upon this, your lives depends upon this, and the lives of our children depend upon this. And then verse 9, I will be a pledge of his safety. And it's as though Moses doesn't want us to miss the profundity of the transformation that has taken place in Judah's life. Because you'll remember that we've seen this word pledge before. We saw this word pledge when Judah thought that Tamar, his daughter-in-law, was a prostitute and he didn't have any money. And so when he said, how much? And she named the price, he said, I'll give a pledge. And, and then uh, when I send the payment, I can redeem my pledge. And now Judah is saying, I personally will be the pledge of the safety of Benjamin. And so he has gone from being a man who is completely self-centered 
and opportunistic. He gets an opportunity to sell his younger brother, the beloved son of his father, into slavery for a little cash, and he takes it. He gets an opportunity to, to take advantage of a woman for pay, and he does it. And now he's ready to say, my life for Benjamin's. My hopes, my ambitions, the projects that maybe I'm working on, the, the desires that maybe I have for my children, all of that I will stake on the safety of Benjamin. I will give all this, Jacob, for you. I will give my life as a pledge of his safety. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. And then continuing in verse 9, If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Judah is taking full responsibility here. So if we, if we ask ourselves the question, how are we going to re-enter God's presence? We get a picture here of a son loving his father and putting himself in the place of his brother. And if we, if we pair that question, how are we going to get back into God's presence with the question, how's the enmity going to be removed? And all through the book of Genesis, the enmity is often brotherly enmity. Cain murdering Abel, Ishmael mocking Isaac, Jacob wanting to kill his twin brother, uh, I'm sorry, Esau wanting to kill his twin brother Jacob, and then Joseph's brothers selling him into slavery. Well, here's a brother who is overcoming the enmity by offering himself as the pledge in place of Benjamin. And this also anticipates how the world is going to be blessed by the seed of Abraham. And it anticipates how the curse on the land is going to be lifted. And it points in the direction of how our lives are going to be transformed. Because there's going to come one who will say these words in John chapter 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So Jesus comes to fulfill the pattern or the type enacted by Judah when he offers himself as the pledge of Benjamin's safety. And I would, I would urge you to recognize that the path to joy, the path to life, is the path of first entrusting yourself to Jesus, who gave himself in your place, and then following Jesus in living as he lived. Jesus says a few chapters later in the book of John, John 15, verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. The the greatest expression of the love of Christ is his death in our place. To abide in the love of Christ is to embrace his sacrifice on our behalf and then to take up our cross and follow him and abide in his love by loving as he did. Greater, greater love, Jesus says, has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And I would urge you to recognize greater joy has no one than the joy that comes when you lay down your life for others. 
So the world and our flesh and the devil lie to us and tell us, you'll have joy when you indulge yourself. But the Bible is telling us the truth. You'll have joy when you lay yourself down for others. And I would just encourage you to look around at this congregation. As you're, as you're participating in the life of the body, hopefully you hang around and you stay for potluck. Hopefully you, you come as often as you can and, and you, you just watch these people live. And I think you'll see that the happiest people here are the people most ready to serve. The people most ready to say, as Judah does, my life for yours. What can I do for you? That's where your joy will be found. And then if you start trying it, if you start trying to live that way, I think that you'll find that what Christ has done for you actually does result in you experiencing his joy in you and your joy being complete. As you begin to say to people in your life, my life for yours. I will lay down my life for you. So what Judah does here is self-sacrificial and I think life-giving and joyous. Judah says in verse 10, if we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Uh, there are all these pairs in this passage. Uh, they're going to take double the money. There's this reference to them having been able to return twice. They're about to make their second uh, trip down to see Joseph, and, and, and there are others as well. Verse 11, then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present a gift. This is a mincha. This is a, a word that's going to be used in Israel's sacrificial system uh, to speak of the gifts of tribute that they offer to the Lord. And so it, there, there, there's, I think there's almost like anticipation of the way that the one who is exalted to the place of lordship is going to receive what amount to acts of worship from the people of God. So I'm not saying that they're literally worshiping uh, Joseph as they bring him this gift, but it anticipates the way that we will render uh, worship to the Lord, and we do render worship to the one who fulfills everything that Joseph typifies. So they're preparing this gift, and look what it consists of. Uh, Joseph, or Jacob says, um, carry a, a, a present or a gift down to the man, a little balm, and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. It's going to be profoundly ironic when the brothers of Joseph arrive in Egypt and render these, these tributes, these gifts to him, because back in Genesis 37, near the end of that chapter, Genesis 37 verse 25 tells us, that the brothers of Joseph sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming down from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. The very things being trafficked by those to whom Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, Joseph's brothers now bring to him in tribute. So they prepare this gift, and, and, and I think that uh, Jacob is not aware of this. So what Moses is showing us here is the way that God is sovereignly building these reversals and these ironies into the story. 
They prepare this gift, and then Jacob says in verse 12, Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. And then he says there in verse 13, Take also your brother. And he means Benjamin. And he says, And arise, go again to the man. And then Jacob offers this prayer, which is, which is good. This is glorious. This prayer... Moses is going to show us, will be answered later in the passage. Verse 14, Jacob prays, May God Almighty grant you mercy. The word here is this, this Hebrew term, rakamim, which is related to the Hebrew uh, term, uh, rechem, which is womb. May God Almighty make this man feel wombish or motherly, you know, uh, be, make, make him feel mercy toward you. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. This is the very first occurrence of that term in the whole of the Old Testament. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And then these words, I think, are intended one way by Jacob. When Jacob says, may he send back your other brother. It's clear, isn't it, that Jacob is thinking of Simeon. Right? Simeon has been taken captive. He's being held in the place of the others uh, by Joseph. And so Jacob is saying, may he send back Simeon and Benjamin. So may he not take Benjamin from me. But I think Moses perhaps has, has a, a second meaning that, that could be in view. And, and that may be why he avoided the name of Simeon here. So that when Jacob praise, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, whom we know to be Joseph, and may he send back your other brother. Well, through this interaction, their other brother, Joseph, is going to be restored to them as well, isn't he? And so it's as though Moses is depicting Jacob praying something and God giving him more than he could ask or think, more than he intended. God fulfills, the, God answers the prayer. And then it's as though Jacob does, in faith, resign himself and say, and as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. And so the men, verse 15, took this gift, this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them. And I just want to pause here and remind you that in the previous chapter, they come before Joseph and he starts accusing them of being spies. Remember that? You're spies. No, we're honest men. And he says, by this, your words will be verified. You bring your younger brother that you're telling me about down here. Well, Joseph sees Benjamin and there's not a word about them being spies from this point forward. It's that whole matter of them being accused of being spies is just dropped. And I think it's because they have verified their words by bringing Benjamin down to see Joseph. Now, Joseph is still going to test these guys. Joseph, he, he can see at this point, okay, Jacob has entrusted Benjamin to them. But I think that Joseph still wants to see what kind of men they have become. And so Joseph is going, he's already engaged in a kind of shrewd uh, plan that enables him to discern who they are and who they have become. Now he's going to augment the plan 
and, and continue to develop the plan to see who, in fact, his brothers are. So when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, there in verse 16, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. Now, imagine this scenario. You've come down to Egypt, and, and you're from a foreign land, and on your first trip to go there to buy grain to keep your people alive, you get accused of being spies. And then when you leave the country, to your chagrin, the money that you use to buy the grain is in your sacks. And you're think, they're, they're thinking, we saw, oh no, they're going to think we stole the grain. And they're going to think that somehow we finagled away to steal the money back that we used to buy the grain. And now you've returned, and when you return, they, they take you into custody, and they transport you to the house of the Lord of the land. And, and this, is, this is a frightful situation that they're in. They don't know what's going to happen. And so naturally, verse 18, the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks. They're going to they're gonna harp on this money. This, this term for money or silver is going to occur five times in, in between verses 18 and verse 22. And then it's going to occur again. There's going to be another reference to it in verse 23. But by, by being focused on the money... These guys are totally distracted from the real issue. And, and what's remarkable about this passage is that we, we who have read the story, and, and I think that Moses intended for people to read and reread this story and reflect on where these guys are. So, you know, Moses wants us to go over this repeatedly and know it thoroughly, and he wants us to, to reflect on what are these guys thinking about? And do I ever find myself in a situation like this, where money or the concerns of survival are distracting me from the real issues? And if we take stock of the real issues here, what are the real issues? Well, I think we would say first and foremost, these guys should be trying to walk with God, shouldn't they? That, that's the biggest issue for every one of these brothers of Joseph. They need to be walking with God. And then they, they need to, they, they've confessed their sin in the previous chapter that they committed against Joseph, but they, they need to be pursuing reconciliation and they need to be watching for what God is doing among them. They need to be thinking about the Lord and his purposes and his kingdom. They should be thinking about the blessing of Abraham, right? Those are the big issues. And these guys are distracted by money and by what's going to happen to them as a result of what it may appear that they have done. It's because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time, they say in verse 18, that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. You see what they fear. They fear that they're about to be enslaved. They fear that Joseph, ironically, whom they sold into slavery, is now going to enslave them. Which is, we know, 
not going to happen, is it? So, so these guys are not only distracted from the real issues, they also have what I think we can say are irrational and unwarranted, pessimistic fears. Irrational, unwarranted, pessimistic fears. That's what they're afflicted with here. And I think that Moses tells us the story this way to say to us, in, in the same way that I think he would say, don't be a whiner like Jacob, I think he would say, don't be people of irrational, unwarranted, pessimistic fears like the brothers are. This is not, this is not behavior that is being commended to us. I mean, Joseph is the Lord of the land. He has all the wealth of Egypt as, at his disposal. He doesn't need their donkeys. <laughs> you know, he's got everything he could ever need. What are their donkeys going to add to him? Verse 19, so they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, oh my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging, the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us. And we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. So it's like they're saying, look, this happened to us, and we're not making any accusations about anybody trying to set us up. We don't know how that money got in there. We're not making any accusations. But we just want you to know we're not guilty of what it may look like we're guilty of. And then look at the way that the Egyptian, the Egyptian tells them that God provides the Egyptian directs them to the truth of the scriptures. This Egyptian who works for Joseph, the steward of his house, the man who's over Joseph's house, verse 23, he replied, peace to you. This is the, the Hebrew term shalom. So this Egyptian is saying to the men who are the patriarchs of 11 of the 12 tribes of Israel, shalom. To you. And, and I think that these guys, if they, if they had been spiritually where they should have been, they would, they would have been walking with God, and they could have enjoyed God's shalom, and they could have been confident in God's providence, and they could have been trusting the Lord, even in the midst of this harrowing situation. But the Egyptian says to them, shalom to you, and then he says, do not be afraid. And again, if we, if we go on the teaching of Scripture, you know, if they're fearing God, they don't need to fear man. They don't need to fear even being enslaved by the Egyptian. Peace to you. The Egypt, this, it's like this Egyptian is preaching the gospel to them. Peace to you. Do not be afraid. And then listen to him. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. That's the truth. Where did this Egyptian learn about their God and the God of their father? I suspect that this guy knows the whole story. And I suspect that everybody close to Joseph knows the whole story. Because I suspect that Joseph has been saying to anybody that he can influence, you know, all these things that the Egyptians worship, you look at them, they're really worthless. The truth is, there's this one living and true God who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry lands. 
And that one living and true God, he made this, this perfect and pristine world, this garden. And then the first man, Adam, and his, and his first wife, Eve, they sinned against God. But God made a promise about the seed of the woman that was going to come from that woman. And I descend from that line. I bet Joseph has been telling them the whole story so that this steward of his house knows Yahweh. Knows terms like shalom. Knows what the fear of God is. And is able to say to Joseph's brothers, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has put treasure in your sacks for you. And then he says, I received your money. And he doesn't tell them more, but from the story, we know, don't we? He did receive their money, and then Joseph told him to put it back in their sacks. And it's not being held against them as any kind of transgression. And then he brought Simeon out to them. And the, the release of Simeon, the bringing out of Simeon, it's as though he's saying, we're not holding any of this against you. Here is the surety that you have nothing to fear. Your brother who was in prison is now being released to you. Verse 24, and when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet. You notice just a few verses ago, they were afraid that they were going to be made into servants. And now they're being served. Water is being brought to them for their feet to be washed. And when he had given their donkeys fodder, they are being treated with respect and honor. They're being provided for. They prepared, verse 25, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon. For they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, Verse 26, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. This is another instance of the fulfillment of Joseph's dreams. And this time, it's not just 10 of his 11 brothers, it's all 11 of his brothers. Because Benjamin is present on this occasion. And just as Joseph had dreamed that his brothers would bow down to him in Genesis 37, exact same uh, phraseology in the Hebrew, now his brothers are in fact bowing down to him. Verse 27, and he inquired about their welfare. And here again, this word that the ESV renders welfare is the Hebrew term shalom. You see what, what Joseph is doing? It's as though he's saying, how are you? No, 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 no. I'm not talking about you know, superficial surface level stuff. I'm inquiring about the shalom of your soul. How are you? He inquired about their welfare and said, is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? And, and what you see here is this loving, and I think we would also say forgiving concern from Joseph, concern for their welfare, concern for the shalom of their being and the shalom of their father. And in the structure of the passage, it's remarkable that on the one hand, Judah is saying, I will be the pledge of his safety. And then in this corresponding section, on the other hand, Joseph is saying, how are you? He's inquiring about the shalom of, 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 of his brothers and of their father. 
And what we see here is that the fraternal conflict in Genesis is being resolved by Judah's self-sacrificial offering of himself in Benjamin's place and by Joseph's forgiving love. And so as, as we continue through the book of Genesis, Joseph and Judah are both going to rise to prominence. When we get to the end of the book and, and Jacob blesses his sons, the, the, the longest blessings and really the, the ones that are really blessings, a lot of the others, they almost read like curses, Jacob speaks over his sons, but the ones that are just unrestrained blessings are the words spoken over Joseph and most especially Judah. And, and this corresponds to what uh, Matt Pierce read earlier in the service where we learn that the birthright goes to jo Joseph because Reuben had disqualified himself and other things had happened, uh, but the chief comes from Judah. M Moses is portraying how Joseph and Judah are, are signaling to the audience of Genesis, to us, that one is going to come. And through his self-sacrificial offering of himself and through his forgiving love, even for those who had offended him, those questions are going to get answered. That's how we get back into God's presence. That's how the enmity gets removed. That's how the world is blessed through the seed of Abraham. That's how the curse on the land is lifted, and that's how your life will be transformed. Through the self-giving love of Christ, through the forgiving love of Christ. So Joseph is, is showing this forgiving love as he inquires about their welfare. And they say, verse 28, your servant, our father, is well. Shalom to your servant, our father. And you remember in the dreams that in one of them, you've got the 11 stars and the sun and the moon, which signal uh, Jacob and uh, uh, his wife bowing down to Joseph. And now the brothers who had hated the report of those dreams are referring to their father as the servant of their brother. Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your youngest brother? And, and I think the question is warranted probably because Joseph has been gone for almost 22 years at this point. Joseph was 17 when uh, he was sold into slavery. And then he was 30 when he stood before Pharaoh and he had the dream of the next 14 years. We're going to read in the next chapter or two that they're two years into the famine. So the seven years of plenty have gone by. Two years of the seven years of, of famine have gone by. So Joseph's about 39 years old. When Joseph was 17, we don't know exactly how old Benjamin was, but let's say he was 12 or even 14. Well, now he's 22 years older. Joseph has never seen Benjamin as a full-grown man. And so he sees this, this man with his brothers. Who's young, he's, young, he's clearly younger than them. And he asks them, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And then, knowing the answer, he says to Benjamin, God be gracious to you, my son. And, and, and we see this righteous, 
patriarchal scenario. And, and what, the reason I say righteous patriarchal scenario is because in many contexts, the word patriarchy has, term, has connotations of uh, like abusive coercion and, and a misuse of power, these kinds of things. But that's not what's going on here. Here, you have a patriarchal scenario in which the Lord, Joseph, who is providing for and I would argue protecting Benjamin here. I, th I think Joseph is engaged in this shrewd, discerning scheme to, to, to determine what kind of men his brothers have become in order to protect Benjamin from them. And so Joseph is providing, he's protecting, he's loving, he's forgiving, and, he, and he's speaking of his brother as though he's his son because he's come under his protection. And, and this, is, this is righteous and good for father figures to be loving and protecting and providing, forgiving, and, and prayerful. God, be gracious to you, my son. And then, verse 30, Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother. And this statement that his compassion grew warm is really the answer to Jacob's prayer back up in verse 14, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And God has. God has granted them mercy. And notice what it was that really switched the compassion into action. It was Benjamin. I think if Benjamin does not come with the brothers, Joseph does prob he probably does not respond to them with compassion. If Jacob does not trust if Jacob does not entrust Benjamin to his brothers and the other ten show up before Joseph, Joseph is probably going to be suspicious. He's probably uh, going to be mistrustful. He's probably going to want to know where in is Benjamin. And, and all that stuff about them being spies is probably going to resurface. And they're not going to be taken into the house for a feast and their brother is not going to be released to them. And, and so I think we see here how, how essential, crucial faith is. The, the faith to send Benjamin, the faith to risk Benjamin is what prompts Joseph's compassion and brings about the fulfillment of Jacob's prayer. His compassion grew warm for his brother. He sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. And then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, serve the food. And, and it's, it's remarkable how what we have here is a picture of Judah's self-sacrifice and Joseph's um, forgiving love, bringing about the release of Simeon from captivity, and compassion for really all the brothers, and now what's going to follow is a feast of bread and wine. Serve the food. They served him, that's Joseph, by himself, and them, the brothers, by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, Joseph has arranged this, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in 
amazement. They, they have not revealed to Joseph their birth order. They don't know that Joseph is their brother, and they're amazed that they've been placed according to their birth. And then verse 34, here we see the, the continuing development of the plan. The plan involves Joseph treating Benjamin the way that Jacob treated Joseph. And the question is, how are those brothers going to respond to the clear favoritism that Joseph has already begun to show to Benjamin when he says, may God be gracious to you, my son. And now, verse 34, portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. Now, we, we have wicked hearts. And we are the kind of people who could be brought in to the home, the banquet hall, of the Lord of all of Egypt. And portions could be brought to us from his own table. No doubt the finest food in the world. The best food you could find anywhere set before you. And then someone else at the table receives five times as much as you. And we're the kind of people that will look at what we have and look at what he has and be mad. You're... You're in the home of the Lord of Egypt. You have been lavishly provided for from his own table. So what if somebody else has five times as much? That, that's how we need to respond. And miraculously, miraculously, it seems Benjamin's brothers don't envy him. Even as Benjamin receives five times as much as any of them. And then the last phrase, I think, is, again, part of the outworking of Joseph's plan. It says they drank and were merry with him. And if you're looking at an ESV, I'll just let you look at the footnote. Uh, not all translations have a footnote. But I think this involves a situation where Joseph has lavishly provided not only of food but also of drink. And he's put his brothers in a situation where their defenses are going to be lowered. And, and where when he springs the trap on them... Um, they, they are going to be vulnerable. But that, that's, that's for a coming Sunday. Um, to summarize what we've seen here, in this remarkable passage that, that is dealing with the way that God is, is providing for his people in the midst of a terrible famine, we're also getting an anticipation of the way that Jesus is going to come and be the one to whom Everyone is ready to say, lift up your heads, you gates, and be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory might come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, he is the king of glory. Christ is going to come, and the ancient doors that have closed the way to the presence of God are going to be opened, and we are all going to be those who are ready to say, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of God as the king enters in triumph. And he will be able to do this because of his self-giving sacrifice and loving forgiveness whereby he removed the enmity between the seed of the woman and the serpent and the seed of the serpent. As Jesus, the seed of Abraham, has brought blessing to all the nations. 
And we trust that one day he will renew the land. And we trust that he has the power to transform our lives as well. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would so work in us that we are growing in patience and faith and hope proven character so that when we find ourselves tested by you, challenged to give up what is most precious to us, we don't respond with whining complaints, but with believing trust, with clear-sighted understanding of what you're doing and of how you're putting us in positions that will give us an opportunity to count these things joy. And Lord, I pray that you would convince us that the real joy, the, the wise, Christ-like joy, is the joy of self-sacrifice. And Lord, we pray that you would make us those who feel so deeply what it is to be under your mercy Lord, make us so feel our guilt and so amazed at your free and loving forgiveness that it's easy for us to forgive others. Lord, give us the, the forgiving love that you've shown to us and give us faith that Christ will come and that there will be a day when there will never be another hurricane, another flood, never another famine, Never another cause to weep. Lord, help us to believe that though this weeping endure for the night, joy will come in the morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing?